This podcast is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness. Did musicians in the 1980s improve upon songs from prior decades? Press play on your boombox and let's find out. Once again, it's time for the idiots. An objective defense of the 80s. From a couple of idiots. Ready? Are you ready? Yeah, yeah ready. Welcome back to another episode of The Idiots, an objective defense of 1980s pop culture. From a couple of, oh boy, let's see. Hmm. I don't know. From a couple of idiots. I think I just demonstrated <laughs> there's at least one idiot. No, I've demonstrated that. Okay, there you go. All right. Hey, my name is Will, and joining me as always is my friend and my co-host, Ray. Here we go again. Yes. On today's show, we're going to be talking about, this is part two. This is the second time we've done this because there's just so many. We're going to be talking about hit songs from the 1980s that were actually covers, but you didn't know it. I had no clue. Yeah. Well, you might know it. I don't know. You probably know it. But you, the other you that I'm talking to, you didn't know it. <laughs> uh, but before that, remember to like, subscribe, rate, review, do all the things that'll help other folks find out about the idiots. That's the bestest idea. Okay, hey, let's get caught up on 80s news. How do you feel about anime, just generally? You know, anime, it's that Japanese style of uh, cartoons, right? Animation. Uh, yeah, yeah. Got I can take it or leave it. specific uh, look to it. Yeah, well, okay. Well, hey, maybe this will get you excited because we have just learned via Polygon.com that Netflix is making a Terminator anime series. The Ghost in the Shell and... Haikyuu, Haikyuu, studio production IG is attached. Man, sometimes you read these articles and you're not sure if it, look, I knew that was a Japanese name, but overall, I'm not even sure I was reading English. That was, I think there was a verb missing from these sentences. Now from see, sentence. w- when I got to the name of that company, I would just call them Hiya. <laughs> Hiya. Well, that sounds like maybe a company from a guest whose name never <laughs> will be spoken on this show ever again. Or maybe it will. I don't know. Mm. Um, so Netflix is developing an original anime series based on the Terminator series. Of course, you know, the Terminator film that we love from the beginning of the 1980s. According to the, the folks involved, it's going to approach Terminator in a way that breaks conventions, subverts expectations, and has real guts. Don't they say that every time we get a Terminator anything? Yeah. The only time that ever really happened was Terminator 2, I think. Yeah, but I think they only say that because American audiences are going to say, hear cartoon and go, mm. oh, it's a... Uh, you know, RoboCop cartoon. Oh. Poorly done, you know. But if they tell you it's anime, relax, there'll probably be like nudity and death and yeah, all that stuff that you want from a Terminator movie. Yeah, wonder. You, you know, one of the things that's absent from this article is talking about, you know, who the audience is. Like, what is this thing going to be rated? You're right, because unless it's going to have the violence of the first film or, I mean, I don't know if the nudity was necessarily a thing, but the things you get to expect from certainly an 80s film uh, yeah, who's tuning in to watch this? Well, I mean, as, as far as nudity goes, I mean, the first thing you see is Arnold's naked butt just about in the whole ah, movie. So. Right, right, right. Very good, yes. I guess because he's like, a, he's a cyborg. I don't count it as nudity. Right, and for some reason in the first movie, they can't transport clothes, but later on <laughs> they can. Is that right? Mm-hmm. I don't remember that. I don't mm. remember nobody else coming in naked mm. like that. Do you? Yeah. Well, in, t- in two, they both did. Yeah, I don't remember the series as well as I remember the first movie. You know, you know if, I'm thinking if this was a Disney film and it was on Disney Plus, they'd do what they did to Daryl Hannah in Splash. 
somehow add hair onto his he would he would just have a a really long mullet (laughs) (laughs) and then they'd have to add it to see where he gets it cut i guess or he tucks it in his jacket or they cgi underwear on him yeah (laughs) or since he's a cyborg maybe he just doesn't have a crack right because Mm. then it'd be like a ken doll or they cgi a garbage can into the scene that's just randomly (laughs) sitting in the middle of the street yes and since it's Disney, can we put Oscar the Grouch pops out of it and makes a wise crack about it? <laughs> and by crack, I don't mean the crack. I mean yeah. a wise crack. The president of C- and CEO of Production IG, which apparently was a company name when I uttered it when it sounded like a bunch of gibberish <laughs> earlier, said in a news release that, quote, I asked my longtime friend and colleague, Mamoru Oshi, what he thought about the idea of turning Terminator into an animated series. His response was, Ishikawa, are you out of your mind? At that instant, I was confident we should get on board. Hmm. So I guess this guy, you know, likes to be challenged. If it sounds like it's a crazy idea, he wants to see if he can figure out how to get it done. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that means it's going to be good, though. I don't know. I, I don't know that I'm getting all that. You know, look, I, I say I won't get exci- don't get excited about anime, but some of the cl- cartoons we loved as kids, like Battle of the Planets, was an anime that, you know, was uh, adapted somewhat for American audiences and, and changed, but it's an anime. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how American they make it. It would be kind of cool if they did it, like in, say, a Tokyo or something, Mm. where it's like a a different version of the story. So that could be cool. Right. We don't know what it's going to be about. I I don't imagine they're going to be chasing Sarah Connor again. I guess we've done that like five times now. We could probably find someone, some other angle, I hope. Yeah, in another country too. Sure. Mm -hmm. Okay, hey, in other 80s news, and this comes to us via Screen Rant, The headline is John Carpenter's Ridiculous Top Gun 2 Pitch Explained. So it turns out that among various directors that were um, asked to direct Top Gun, Tony Scott, who ultimately did direct it, wasn't the first one that was considered. According to Screen Rant, the first uh, director that was offered the job was John Carpenter. But Carpenter turned down the movie, citing the climax of the film, saying it was unrealistic, and said in an interview that... (laughs) And this reminds me of our conversation last week, which is I'm glad this is in the news right now. Our conversation last week with Dr. Brian Cogan about uh, Cold War movies. And mm-hmm. yeah, it is kind of a wonder that in Top Gun, they shoot down these unnamed countries' jets that somehow we don't have some sort of retaliation. But um, that just shows you how powerful America was. Yeah. Maybe part of that propaganda of the Cold War. But anyway, Carpenter said the end of it, the film was unrealistic, saying, quote, there'd be World War Three. Stop that. End quote. He was asked years later then, and this it goes back to a comment he made in an interview that was in 2017. He said, and this is with regard to a possible franchise, he told entertainment.ie this would be his take on the follow-up to the original film. I don't know. There's nothing I could do with that movie. I have no idea. It's strange. It's such a weird movie. It's so strange. I don't know. They'd all be naked. They'd all be naked in the Jets. <laughs> so we heard uh, Quentin Tarantino some time ago waxed poetic about the homoerotic themes of Top Gun. It's it's more akin to a mu- music a long music video than it is an action film, you know, in many regards. But it seems like Carpenter, you know, was joking about sort of those takes on it, just sort of doubled down, clearly making that he's not interested in directing, having anything to do with Top Gun. First one, sequel, nothing. Well, had they called me, I could have pitched him something. Yeah, I'd have took a crack at it, and you would have pitched him something that John Carpenter would have been interested in directing. You're saying. Yeah, maybe they crash into the jungle. Yep, okay. I see Snake Plissken's emerging from a jet now. Well, yeah, kind of like a snake kind of guy. But we have a fog rolling into the jungle now. Oh, I see. Okay, so the creatures are coming out of the fog now. So so we what we have is the sequel to both Top Gun and The Fog in the same movie. 
and maybe a prequel to Escape from New York. We see Snake Plissken when he was in the military and still a hero. Yeah, he can replace the dead guy from the movie. That would be something. And with the way CGI works, Kurt Russell could actually do it. Yeah, they did a great job of de-aging him in that uh, Guardians of the Galaxy 2 movie. Yeah, but uh, but didn't uh, Escape from New York take place in like 1996 or something? Yeah, exactly. So that's why I said it would have to be a prequel. Yeah, yeah that'd be a prequel. It'd be like before the world, the, the world went to in the... America pr- hmm. prisoners on New York, on Manhattan Island. Because remember, he was like a hero, a military hero first. Yeah. Then he robbed a bank or something. Mm-hmm, That's mm-hmm. why he was going to prison. And I, I think they could have done a lot with Top Gun if John Carpenter had been involved. And I'm not opposed to the naked jet flyers. I mean- yeah. <laughs> You know, if that's what he, if that's what it takes to sell the movie for him, fine. Mm-hmm. Yes. Long as we get monsters, pirates in the fog. Yeah. And you look, if it's a problem, if it's Disney that backs the film, look, they could also have mullets. Covering their behinds. Well, I guess as long as the as long as the zombie pirates are singing, mm-hmm. I, I guess it's a Disney movie. You're right. People should come to you for these pitches. Stop wasting their time. Yeah. In other eighties news, we've got some sad news. Lou Ottens, the father of the mixtape, really mm-hmm. passed away just a few days ago. He is the gentleman who led the team at Phillips that changed the world, starting in 1963 by introducing a small portable way of romancing a girl, showing your friends what kind of music you're into, making a road trip less boring. Uh, Copying all the free music you can get from your friends. Yeah. Secretly recording uh, someone who's doing a criminal act and sitting there in front of the radio when they're doing the top 10 songs, waiting to hit the record button and hoping to God that the DJ shuts up long (laughs) enough for you to get a good version. Right. What the, the, yeah, they do those perfect talk-ups where they just t- suck up all the instrumental part right to the singing starts. Yeah. Damn it. This has got to be one of the top three bestest inventions of all of mankind. Yes. Certainly, look, what you're describing, I mean, these are things that, this impacted our lives in a huge way. Yeah. So when I was a kid, able to DJ and then record my mixes, bring them with me or send them out as a, as a demo of what I could do. Yeah. Yeah. It was life-changing. Um, as the story goes, and this is according to uh, a report or an article in the New York Times, who quotes uh, a gentleman who directed a, a documentary about this the, ver- the creation of the cassette tape called Cassette, a documentary mixtape, Zach Taylor. He said that as the story goes, Lou was at home one night trying to listen to a reel-to-reel recording when the, the loose tape began to unravel from its reel. My dad had one of those reel-to-reels when I was a kid. We, I never ran into that problem. I think I ran into that mm-hmm. problem more with cassette tapes when you had to tighten them up with a pencil. But um, as a result of this, he went in the office the next day and said, all right, here's what we're going to do. And he had this little wooden block that he had cut that was about the size of what he wanted the cassette tape to be like. He explained how it would be a self-contained reel-to-reel, you know, and got the engineers working on it. Ultimately, Phillips cut a deal with Sony to co-create and market and distribute the, the cassette tape. And one of the things they did was, which was kind of like um, when we talked about Phillips uh, with regard to the, I think it was Phillips, right? We're talking about VHS tapes. They let anybody create cassette tapes. They didn't try to uh, patent it in such a way that would prohibit other folks from making them. So very quickly, cassette tapes flooded the market, you know? So it, it ensured their longevity by being more open to competition instead of, you know, closed off to it. In 2013, uh, Ottens told Time Magazine that it was a big surprise for the market. It was so small in comparison with reel-to-reel recorders that it was, at that moment, a sensation. Ultimately, though, by the, by the time, well, I guess a couple of interesting things is later in his life, still working for Phillips, Ottens is responsible for the extinction of the cassette tape. 
because his other contribution to the innovations that affected our lives is helping invent the CD. Well, the, the man's an inventor. You can't stop him. Yeah. It's just sad now we won't get the next thing from him. Yes. Well, he had long retired before he had uh, passed away. But um, you're right. You know, he's one of those folks that don't come around all, all the time. He had some things that weren't as successful as the cassette tape and the CD, including an unsuccessful video disc uh, project. But ultimately, yeah, those, those, those two things alone, you know, he could rest easy knowing that he had a huge uh, impact on the world. Yeah. He was never comfortable taking credit for the cassette or how much of an impact it had on music history. Ultimately, when he looked back to, he thought that folks that were still clinging to the use of the cassette tape were doing so just out of a sense of nostalgia because the audio quality of it was inferior to things that came after like his CDs, compact disc. I, I like cassettes. Yeah. They do wear out though. I got a bunch of them that I'm afraid to play because I can't mm. replace them. Yeah. Uh, you know, I do too. And I, what I want to do is I want to get uh, one of those uh, players where you can connect it to your computer and then like record mm -hmm. whatever's on there yeah. and then have it permanently. Then, yeah, then if the cassette gets damaged, at least you'll have some kind of record of it. Mm -hmm. In other 80s news, uh, just this past week, or maybe just a little over a week ago now, we were treated finally to the sequel to 1988's Coming to America. The sequel, of course, is called Coming to America with a number in it. Uh, and we're going to give you our thoughts in our new segment called... When you think of garbage, think of Akeem. <laughs> it's, it's a segment only for the review of Coming to America. Yeah. Uh, and we may be giving away spoilers, so if you don't want to hear it, skip to about uh, minute marker 21. So, Ray, what did you think about uh, the, the final, finally getting the long-awaited sequel to one of our favorite 1980s films? It's hard. Yeah. Here's the problem. I didn't think it was as good as the first one, obviously. Yeah. I don't think anybody thinks that. Yeah. I think there were some problems, but I thought there were some good parts. So I'm going to start off and say that the barbershop scene is the, absolutely the best part of this whole movie. Yeah. Same character, same makeup, same age that they were <laughs> yeah. 30 years ago. Yeah. And their jokes were inappropriate and mm -hmm. funny. Mm -hmm. Loved that part. Yeah, that seemed like the part that most stayed exactly how it was in the first film. Mm -hmm. Everything else seemed like a highly polished sort of take, a new take on what they did before and wasn't as successful. Yeah. I agree. This one, however, and I don't know if that's because it was on Amazon. Yeah. It felt like a straight-to-video sequel. Yeah. Originally, it was intended, as you know, it was intended to be in the movie theaters, but uh, COVID right. kept getting it pushed back, and ultimately they wound up cutting this deal with uh, Amazon Prime to get it out there. But you're right. So it could have been in theaters, but there was something about it. And I think it's it's the quality of video. You know, these things are shot on digital oftentimes. And so you don't have that feeling that we did in the 1980s. And I also think it's kind of the thing like with special effects, when something CGI versus a model, it feels less real. Like our brain knows that there's something about it. Like film, there's actual yeah. film. There's a chemical reaction. Light strikes it and changes it. So it's real. This is, you know, pixels on a computer screen greener, you know? Yeah, and it, it, it has that weird TV feel to it, you know what I yes, mean? Yes, live to tape or live on video, yeah, it's very sharp yeah. and you know, clean. Mm -hmm. Now, the other thing, um, there's there's two big name stars in this that I thought were a waste of time being in this movie. Uh, Wesley Snipes? Wesley Snipes and Tracy Morgan. Oh, Tracy Morgan, yeah. Tracy Morgan was just playing himself. Yeah, and he didn't get to do that a lot even. Yeah, and Wesley Snipes was so over the top in this movie. It was ridiculous. Mm. Anybody could have done that role and done the same thing. I don't know why they had to have him. And he's a liar. I did not 
my pants watching this movie. Yeah. You know, I meant to start this off saying how many, we should rate it on a scale of diapers. How many diapers did we wet? If we do that, that's not yeah. going to give it a very good review. No. But there were things, people who surprised me in this movie. Okay. And that's Leslie Jones. Oh, yeah. She was great. I love her. She's really funny. Yeah. Her playing the mother mm-hmm. of Jermaine Fowler. Mm. I think she's a horrible actress, but I liked her in this movie. I thought she was funny. Yeah. Her role felt more like a throwback. Mm. You know, there wasn't that sort of vibe except for, but for a few characters. Yeah. I think Tracy Morgan too somewhat, but you're right. We hardly saw him. Well, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when uh, King Akeem, Eddie Murphy, yep. is mopping. Yes. Back at uh, McDowell's. Right. And right. the father-in-law walks in yeah. and, you know, they have that nice conversation. I yeah. thought that was probably one of the best scenes in the, as far as like non-comedy moments. I thought right. that was great. I thought that scene was awesome. Yeah. And it's like, once again, it's kind of the vibe of the old film. Mm -hmm. And you know, you're talking about Wesley Snipes being underused. In the first film, I felt that there were stakes. You know, this idea that he needed to find a wife, that he had to please his father. There weren't, they weren't life and death, but they felt like Mm -hmm. there were stakes and there was a clock ticking. This one, you get this suggestion that there may be war by Wesley Snipes in his, his next door country, which was called, what, Nextoria or something like that. Something like that. But you never felt like he really was going to do it. They didn't even get there. They never got close to it. It just sort of just, you know, was let go. There was no real tension. Yeah, there was, there were some problems with that. And I think that has a lot to do with Wesley's character. I think it was written poorly. I don't think he acted it well. But Arsenio was amazing. Yep, he was good, definitely. He, he brought back that flavor from the first one. He was really good. I like that additional character he played of the, uh, like, soothsayer or... <laughs> yeah, that was... And, you know, I thought, uh, keeping in in the style of the first movie, he should have just played the uh, character that Wesley Snipes was playing. Yeah, that would have been good, yeah. He could have just done that. I, I just don't understand why Snipes had to be in this movie. Yeah. You know, I did like the, some of the themes that they were sort of exploring with trying to make it more contemporary, but I felt like, wait, we didn't we do this already like in Aladdin? That whole idea that huh. why can't a woman be in charge? Oh, wait, I'm the king. I'll just change the law. Here's the problem that they have with this movie. Yep. They're trying to appeal to Gen X and millennials and Gen Z. So they're trying to have Eddie Murphy's character and the jokes like the first one, but then they're trying to do the whole girl power. Why can't a girl run the country? I did like the fact that they didn't beat me over the head with it, though. <laughs> I refuse to learn or evolve. Do not try to make me. It's not that. I have no problem with a queen or a girl power or any of that. I just don't want to be beat over the head with it. Like, I get it. The biggest problem I had with it was it was one of those things where it was a small problem that, as an audience, we're sophisticated enough to know early on how it's going to be solved or that it could be solved. Oh, yeah. And again, yeah. Aladdin, this was the story of Aladdin. So maybe in, you know, Aladdin came out in 1992, I think. Maybe then we were thinking, hmm, this is an unusual plot, you know? Mm-hmm. But here I, we're already thinking, he's just got to change the law, which is ultimately the resolution. Right, which is all he had to do. And I also think that maybe they should have just had him start off as king and had James Earl Jones and maybe flashback scenes. Ooh, he appears as a ghost. I think it, I think it would have made more sense if he was already king because that was one of the problems I had was and he's they're like, oh, you've lost your way and all that, but he was only king for like an hour. Yeah, that's true. And I love James Earl Jones. He was great in the first one, but, mm-hmm. you know, and the funeral scene was funny. Yeah, I was going to say, it was cool that, the way they did that funeral. That was pretty <laughs> that cool. Was, that was pretty good. Uh, and the other great surprise, which I thought they worked in really well, was the Randy Watson scene. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I did like seeing all those 
throwbacks, you know, all those characters come back. That was, that was I think that was great. They should be dead, but yeah, that was fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> most of them. I'm going to give it uh, a six out of 10 because oh. I probably wouldn't watch it again. Uh, I'm with you. Maybe I'd give it slightly better than that. Not more than a seven out of 10 maybe. And I, I, I do plan on watching it again with my wife because she didn't get to see it with me. And yeah. maybe I'll think differently of it then, but yeah, I wasn't, certainly wasn't blown away. And when it was over, she, you know, she asked me what I thought. I said, eh, you should watch it. It's, it's fine. But yeah, once again, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, hated it the first time I saw it. Watched True. it a few years later. Absolutely love it now. So maybe I'll rewatch this one in a couple of years and I'll get it up to maybe a seven and a half or an eight. You know, one thing that was good about it though, I think is that I had concerns in the last several years, decades or so maybe now that Eddie Murphy had given up on trying to be funny. And it, you did see these glimpses of, ah, oh, there he is. Okay, he'll do it. He'll go there. You know what? I think Arsenio brings that out at him. Hmm. I think he should he should really uh, keep him around him, keep him close. So check it out. See what you think. Let us know. You can go to our Facebook page or join us in the Rumpus Room group of the Idiots page on Facebook and give us a, your thoughts and comments. All right. Hey, that was 80s News. Dun, 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 dun. Ugh. Like we mentioned, today on the show, we're going to be talking about 1980s hit songs that you, and maybe Ray, didn't know were also cover songs. Um, before that, though, we're going to talk about Smash Madness and make some decisions there. Let's see if we can have no controversy this week, although I already, had, yeah, already I anticipate at least one or two. Yeah, I know. All right, so we're on the Elite Eight, as we mentioned. Mm -hmm. The first match in the Elite Eight is Rambo versus John Matrix. Of course, again, it's Rambo from Rambo and Matrix from Commando, if you don't remember. Mm -hmm. I think Matrix. Yeah, I give this one to, to Matrix. I think even Rambo comes up them with that knife. He's We've seen enough times, you know, Matrix blocking a knife or whatever, and he's got that mm -hmm. strength. If you could just grab him by the wrist, probably pick him up, punch him a few times in the face. Yeah, yeah. Since my boy Andy's gone, mm -hmm. I got to go up Matrix on this one. All right. Wow, we're sailing along. Anyway, I know there's, yeah. a, there's a speed bump coming up. I, I, I know. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, yeah, this is Braddock. Versus Snake Plissken. Mm -hmm. If I vote with my heart, <laughs> it's Snake. Yeah. But if I use my brain, I got to go with Braddock. Yeah. I agree with your brain <laughs> and not so, your heart. I went with Braddock. Yeah. I didn't want to. I yeah, really I, didn't want to, but Snake's got a goddamn eye patch and a limp. Yeah. So it's hard for him to get past this round. I ha Yeah, I, I can't go against uh, Braddock in this round. I, I agree. Like we talked last week. Plus, you know, again, Braddock's character, clear a military guy who you see is demonstrated and not only be use of handguns or weapons generally, also knows martial arts. So if they came at each other with both with guns, they'd either both be dead. So maybe they'd negotiate, all right, let's put our guns down and just figure this out. And then he would still, Braddock would still win. All right, okay. Those aren't the ones I thought we'd have a problem with. <laughs> Here we go. Crease versus Khan. John Crease from Karate Kid. Khan, mm -hmm. Noonie, and Singh from Wrath of Khan. I got to tell you, I went back and forth on this for a while. I did not. Uh, I know who you picked. I picked John Kreese. Of course you did. Yeah. Now, why do you think? Again, Khan, genetically engineered human, five um, times stronger than a normal human. He, he had trouble with the, the Star Trek guys. Mm -hmm. John Kreese has never had a problem with anybody. <laughs> Except Mr. Miyagi, who's like five foot tall. Nah, he let Mr. Miyagi. Oh no, you're changing. Yo, you can't just change the story. He would have killed Miyagi if he could have. He tried to punch Miyagi. Miyagi was too fast. He wound up punching two car windows instead. The way I remember it, yep. he punched out the car windows yep. 
And then Mr. Miyagi honked his nose and they all laughed. And that was the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. That's how I remember it. Your memory is, is, is getting as uh, worn out as a cassette tape. <laughs> and Khan had trouble beating up Star Trek people. Yeah, you know, so I, I agree with you. I think John Kreese wins. I went yes. back and forth, but ultimately, I, I agree. Khan is super, is five times stronger, so he would definitely be stronger than Kreese. But I rewatched Wrath of Khan to see if we had any demonstrations of his fighting abilities. We mm -hmm. see his strength. He demonstrates how strong he is. He doesn't ever have any hand-to-hand -hand combat. So our only thing we know about his hand-to-hand -hand combat is what he did, in the again, in the 60s t TV show. Then... He, he and Kirk seemed fairly matched, except he was stronger. But when Kirk was able to land blows, he was able to hold him back. So even though he's physically strong, it seems like he could still be hurt. Mm -hmm. and they did have more of a wrestling style that would be more akin to, you know, something maybe Kreese would be, a, you know, better at. So I right. think, I think provided that Kreese is able to outmaneuver Khan and not let him get any blows in, which he probably can, I think ultimately Kreese get him in chokehold or something and sweep the leg or whatever, yeah. Right, right. All right. Well, we still have Ryder yep. from The Hitcher and Chong Lee from Bloodsport. Yes. Now, we both mm. know they're both Stone Cold killers. Right. Um, they're both dirty cheaters. Mm -hmm. This is a coin toss, but I went with Ryder. Now, is this you voting with your heart instead of your uh, brain no. scan? No, I just think he's a better tactician. But is he a martial artist? We don't know. I mean, we got to go with what he demonstrates, the kind of fighting he does. Not, well, he I mean he did kill an entire police station. So. Yeah, so I guess he could have a weapon. Even if we never we talked about him having a weapon because he never needed it. We don't know how he did it. <laughs> <laughs> They're just all dead. Yeah, I I agree with you. It was John Ryder, and part of the reason is, as I mentioned, you know, just considering the size of these guys. So you know, John Claude Van Damme, sure, he's muscular, but he's like all of five ten. So he says, I think it's when he's wearing lifts in his sneakers. I think he's probably more like <laughs> five eight, five nine. The actor played Chong Lee Bolo Young. He's like five, five or five, six. So mm -hmm. he is, and Rutger Hauer was six, one. So John Ryder's a good five, five, six inches taller. He's also a maniac. He might not yeah. have the martial arts, but I don't know. You could see him getting beat, getting punched and still hanging in there long enough to kill Chong Lee. Right. Very good. All right. That was a lot easier than I thought. Whew. Yeah. I thought we might disagree only because, uh, I, again, I was I couldn't decide on Crease or Con, and but I did write Crease ultimately. I I thought you probably thought I picked uh, Snake. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, that that was the other one. Although, yeah, because you know, wait, in because in prior some of the prior ones, it did see more of that heart versus head thing. Oh no, Indiana Jones, come not. on, that's heart. That's all heart. I still think that that should have been Indy. The people have spoken, but but uh, somehow you rigged it. And mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, no. I, Apparently, you have a bunch of fake accounts that you vote with <laughs> on those things. That's right. I didn't even, by the way, I didn't vote on this, this time. You know, it's so funny you say that, though, because I was watching that thing. Because I thought, <laughs> if it gets close, Ray is definitely going to sneak a vote in and get this thing over the top. I'm going to be on top of that. And as soon as he votes, I'm going to vote and cancel out that vote. <laughs> I was like, if he I doesn't didn't. vote, I won't vote. I did not, because you said we make it fair. Well, I knew if it was tied, I could have expected you to sneak one in there. I knew it. I was ready for it. Yeah. Alrighty, let's have some fun. Mm -hmm. Let's do this thing. We did it once Once upon a time, talking about songs from the 1980s that were hits, but they were also covers of earlier songs. And, you know, to make it a little more interesting, I put it as a challenge to you where I'll give you some songs to decide whether or which song was a cover or not. And then I have a different type of way of asking you this time than I did last time. So oh, yeah? for a few of them, I'm going to actually just play you the original song and you tell me 
what song it is and okay, who did okay. the version from the 1980s that we know. Because I think some of them are a little hard to recognize because they're hmm. so different than ultimate hit from our uh, childhood. All right, let's do it. All right, so here, here you go. I'm going to give you the names of two songs from the 1980s that were both hits. You tell me mm-hmm. which one was a cover. Yeah. It is either How Will I Know by Whitney Houston, 1985, or I Feel For You by Chaka Khan, 1984. All right. I'm going to say Chaka Khan seems like a lazier artist, so I think it's that one. <laughs> What? Now, Chaka Khan, by the way, had you know hits before the 80s even. We even got into that decade. So lazy, I don't know if I would say that, but- she was a Whitney Houston before Whitney Houston, right? She probably wasn't as big, ever as big as Whitney Houston because mm-hmm. Whitney Houston was enormous. But okay, here is the answer, which comes in the form of me playing the clip of the song. You're right. <laughs> So you're right. I Feel For You by Shaka Khan, 1984, is actually a cover. Did you recognize the artist singing the original version there? No, I did not. Okay. That was Prince. Huh. It was written by Prince and originally appeared on his 1979 self-titled album. Not a, not a big Prince fan, so I would have oh, never really? figured that out. I mean, <laughs> you're surprised. I, oh, really? Well, you're I, am big surprised. I'm, see, I am surprised Why? in a sense, because he's kind of like a modern-day uh, James Brown. You know, he was, you know... Sort of that lineage of- uh, Then you would, you'd probably be surprised that I'm not a big James Brown fan oh, either. I am surprised. Wow. Mm-hmm. I've learned, I'm learning more about you today than anything else. Yeah, well, Prince, have that. Prince has got to be like one of the most prolific, you know, uh, singer songwriters of that generation. As you know, he wrote a number of hit songs for other people. Yes. And he's also an amazing guitar player as he proved on the Batman soundtrack. Right. So this song wasn't originally released as a single- but the album itself peaked at number two on the Billboard Top 200 and remained there for 28 weeks. A demo version of it, an acoustic demo of it, was recently released posthumously. I'm going to pause to see if you hate that word. No, that one's okay. Okay, good. That means you died yeah. and then something came out. Yes. So that's okay. In October 2019, to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the, of the album. Of course, we know the, uh, the, better, the version that we know better and most folks know was the song that was recorded by Shaka Khan in 1984, as we mentioned, that version includes rapping from Melly Mel and uh, synthesizer programming from the system's David Frank and harmonica playing by Stevie Wonder. That song, which it was released as a single, we were able to track whether it did better. And of course, since it was from the 1980s, even though Prince did the original, that song peaked at number three on the Billboard Hot 100 and was only prevented from further chart movement by Prince's Purple Rain. Uh, he set that whole thing up. <laughs> It was the long con. Yeah. All right, here's another one for you. Which one of these is a cover? Total Eclipse of the Heart by Bonnie Tyler, 1983, mm-hmm. or Alone by Heart from 1987? That's a tough call. Mm, okay. I'm going to go with Bonnie Tyler. All right, here is the answer to the question. So it's heart. Yeah. So this time heart's the lazy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Total Eclipse of the Heart was actually written by Jim Steinman, who is a frequent uh, collaborator of Meatloaf. He wrote uh, Bad Out of Hell and a number of other things for Meatloaf. So it was Bonnie Tyler who was the lazy one after all. Wait, no, <laughs> I guess they're both lazy because neither of them wrote their own songs. 
But <laughs> but Hart took it a step further because they just took a song that was done by somebody bef- else before. Uh, Billy Steinberg and Tom Kelly actually wrote and recorded the original version under the name I-10 in 1983. We actually had a version in 1984 by Valerie Stevenson and John Stamos, who recorded it for a TV show that they were on called Dreams. Huh. Of course, Hart's 1987 one is the one that we know most well, was the most successful, most well-known. It was the first single from their ninth studio album, Bad Animals. That's a pretty good song. I like that one. Yeah, I do like that one. I love the keyboard on it. You know, it's got that uh, very 80s powered ballad vibe, that mix of soft keyboard and then hard rocking guitar uh, Mm -hmm. with with, uh, Ann Wilson's vocals. Yeah, the the lyrics have that whole 1980s movie vibe where the nerd kind of <laughs> is trying to get that girl to yeah. hang out with him. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, I don't know that it was... I can't remember a movie that was in offhand, but it would have been yeah, It's perfect. not that yeah. I know of, but it would have been absolutely fantastic if they could have got it for a movie in the 80s. Oh, yeah. Singing the uh, high parts in the harmonies in the background is actually Tom Kelly, who, as I mentioned, co-wrote the song originally. It's Hart's biggest hit in the U.S., spent three weeks at number one on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100, and it also is uh, Hart's most successful single in the U.K., where it peaked at number three on the U.K. singles chart. All right, here, now this one I'm going to do a little differently for you. I am going to play for you the original version of the song. Right. You're going to tell me who did it in the 1980s and tell me what song it is. The first, All tell right. me what song it is should be easier, but <laughs> right. it may not be that easy. Okay, here you go. City streets you used to walk along with me. And every step I know this song. Yeah, is that crazy? It's always something on my mind. Close enough. There's always something uh, there too. To remind me. Yeah, yeah. Yep, yep, there you got it. And that is uh Yeah, the name might be too. I can see this dude's oh. big dumb head too. Oh. Now, Damn it. Now I've got to look him up just to see the size of his cranium. He's got that uh, typical 80s hair. Mm. I think he's like a redhead. Maybe. It sounds like you're describing the guy from Simply Red. God damn it. I can't think of his name. No, the vocalist is named Pete Byrne. Pete Byrne is a member of Naked Eyes is the group. Damn it. I knew that. Yeah. So you're right. You did identify the right song. It was originally written in the 1960s by Burt Bacharach. Yeah, that's it. And Hal David. I love both versions of that song. Yeah. And there's actually a, a one that came out uh, even later than that in, in uh, 1970. So, so okay. So the one I played for you was by Lou Johnson, who reached 49 on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1964. There was uh, one that reached number one in the UK, which was done by Sandy Shaw later that same year. But um, there was also another version by R.B. Greaves that you might also know, which was the first one to enter, straight enter, uh, up enter the top 40 in the U.S. It reached number 27 in 1970. But the version that we're talking about was composed 20 years after it was written by English new wave band Naked Eyes. Vocalist Pete Byrne, who I mentioned, and the keyboardist Rob Fisher actually cut the song as a part of a demo that they were using to try to get a record deal. And it worked. It landed them a contract with EMI. Uh, they actually recorded the the song, the record rather, ultimately at Abbey Road Studios. They recorded this particular track after they left a, par- a party that was somewhere else in the building with Paul McCartney. Who, hmm. of course, you know, 
uh, yeah. a long history with Abbey Road Studios and a bunch of number of other folks. Byrne tells a story that it was after that party at about 1 a.m. after stumbling out of the party that he decided he felt up for being able to record the vocals and he got it in the first take. That's how it's done. Yeah, I was going to say, you, that's probably how all your things are. All, your, all my vocals were recorded. After you reach peak party, let's record! Right. This one entered the, the Billboard Hot 100 in March of 1983, peaking at number eight in June of that year. It was also a top 10 hit in Australia, Canada, and oh, but it only reached number 59 in Naked Eyes' homeland, uh, the UK. That's surprising. Yeah. Okay, here's another one for you. I'm going to give you two songs. You tell me which one was the cover. Was the cover either... Eight Miles High by Husker Du from 1984 or King of the Hill by Minutemen in 1985. I'm going to go King of the Hill. And here's the answer. Of course, you're familiar with the Husker Du version of Eight Miles High, I would imagine. I don't like Husker Du. Oh. And as I pointed out many times before, there's only a couple of uh, Minutemen songs I like. I see. So it's on me. It's my fault. That's what you're saying. It was a it was an absolute guess on my part. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, hey, hey. Uh, I don't think Husker Du has one good song in my oh, opinion. Oh, really? I actually like the Eight Miles version of by Husker Du. It's very different than this one, which was uh, a song that was first released as a single in 1966, originally written and performed by The Birds. The, now, The Birds is a great band. Yeah. Yeah, that, that version's good too, of course. I mean, yeah, the birds have a number of great songs. Uh, it was written specifically by Gene Clark, Jim McGowan, also known as Roger McGowan, and David Crosby. Critics often cite Eight Miles High as being the first psychedelic rock song, but it was subject to a ban on the U- U.S. radio shortly after it was released because uh, a, a trade publication released a report suggesting that it was about drugs. Oh, Jesus Christ. Have they never, uh, what year did that come out? 66. So when did Clapton release cocaine? Mm, yeah, it's like can't, 70s. Can't be much yeah. farther off than that. Oh, we had evolved by then. Oh. The band denied the allegations, but years later, Clark and Crosby admitted, yeah, the song was partly about our drug use. I think almost 50% of songs are about drug use. Yes, it's what makes the musicians good at playing the instrument. I, I yeah, that's, uh, what, you write about what you know. What do you want? Crappy music or yeah. drug addicts? I, I don't know. That's uh, why emo bands just write about how much in love they are with some girl they can't have. Oh. <laughs> Back in the 60s, bands were writing about drugs. Because mm-hmm. they were- drug parties and orgies. What about the drugs? I don't know. The song peaked at number 14 on the Billboard Hot 124 on the UK singles chart. The fact that it never made it to the top 10, some people believe that it was because of the problems it had, the controversy and being banned from the radio, but other folks say it's not really a very commercial song either. It was, com- it was actually covered by like a dozen artists, including Roxy Music, Robin Hitchcock, Golden Earring. And I thought this was interesting. Don McLean's song, American Pie. Of course, you're familiar yeah. with that. Yeah, that's another one I hate. It actually makes reference to this song with the line, the birds flew off with a fallout shelter eight miles high and falling fast, which is a line I've sung. I didn't ha- know what it means. Nobody knows what those lyrics mean. He won't tell anybody and nobody knows. There's been, you know, dozens of uh, theses written on what those, the words mm. mean. Now, the Husker Du version didn't chart on the, on the, uh, in the U.S., but it did reach uh, 22 in the U.K. independence chart. All right, here's mm-hmm. another one for you. Which one's the cover? Got My Mind Set on You by George Harrison, 1987, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or Do You Really Want to Hurt Me by Culture Club in 1982? <sighs> George Harrison is an artiste. Mm-hmm. So I highly doubt he would cover someone else's song. 
Yeah. But maybe that's the trick here. <laughs> but I'm still going to go with Culture Club. This is the scene from Princess Bride. <laughs> yeah. I just need to know what kind of man you are. <laughs> right. Whatever he says. So I know not to st- start a <laughs> land war. Yes. So I'm going to go with Culture Club. Okay. And here's the answer. I've got my Damn it. <laughs> I like this version. I expect more from a Beatle. Yeah, you would think. I was quite surprised myself that this was a cover. But the song was uh, written and composed by Rudy Clark and originally recorded by James Ray in 1962 under the title, I've Got My Mind Set On You. Harrison's version is Got My Mind Set On You. That was his innovation. He nice cut out job. a word. <laughs> nice job. He actually first heard the song, Harrison, when he was uh, during a visit to his sister who lived in Illinois at the time in 1963, just a few months before they appeared on the Ed Sullivan show for the first time. There, as the story goes, Harrison visited a number of different record shops, snatched up a a bunch of different albums, and among those were James Ray's LP that contained that song. Hmm. Frequent collaborator Jeff Lynne of ELO fame, who was also a traveling Wilbury, plays the bass and the keyboards on the track. Uh, It peaked at number one in the U.S., uh, Billboard Hot 100, and it was also number one in Australia and Canada. It only reached number two in the U.K. It irritates me that these gigantic stars... Tried to hide the fact that these things were covers hmm. when they did them, because I don't, I don't remember George Harrison ever saying anything about that being a cover song. Like that's like when when local bands tried to find a song from like England, yep. like before the internet was popular. Yeah, back in the eighties, they try and pick like English bands and cover their show mm, and try right. and pass it off as their own at their shows. This is a Quiet Riot, not Quiet Riot, but like local bands. Okay, like local bands would try and pull off songs and pretend like they were their own, so they could get better shows. Oh, but they'd pick uh, stuff from uh, you saying uh, Europe or some yeah. other country. They tried to pick like uh, the new wave of British heavy metal bands, huh. the early days of the eighties. Yeah, so you go to see these bands and like, oh, dude, that's not killer. Yeah, and then you they, they wouldn't even tell you, and then you find out mm. two years later that they're doing a cover song. And it's like you guys suck. So how would you have, I guess, hoped George Harrison would convey this? Like when he came out, he doing an interview, you mean? Or maybe on the album, we say cover of... Well, I mean, there was a video. Yes. I think if you're doing a cover, the goddamn video should Mm. say right off the rip that it's a cover song. Mm. Like when Megadeth did uh, Anarchy in the UK, you knew that's a cover, the Sex Pizzles. Yep. But if you're picking something obscure that people aren't going to know, your dumb ass needs to admit it and just have a little disclaimer at the bottom or something. Mm. Yeah. That block of information they would have for the videos also says cover of. Right. Yeah. Cover of this band so that, you know, I think that would have been helpful in the eighties so that I could know George Harrison is lazy. Well, yeah. One of the things I like about doing these episodes is, you know, is, is being able to honor the fact that someone else wrote these songs. Someone else tried their shot at getting a hit. Yeah. The craziest one we've done so far is I love rock and roll. Hmm. Because I did not know Joan Jett did not write that until we did the episode. Right. And uh, that's the Arrows. Yep. And their version is just as good as hers. Yes. It's absolutely fabulous. Yeah. I agree that last time we did this, there was a couple of songs that I thought, wow, I like the originals, maybe more in some instances. But for the most part, in addition to being able to honor sort of where things came from, we also show how the 80s improved on something, you know, because I think in almost every one of these examples, these versions in the 80s charted much better than the originals. But you're right. We should be able, they should be able to give more obvious credit to the folks who created them in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, speaking of videos, there was actually two music videos. One of them was, uh, it was like a guy pursuing a, a, a woman in a, like an arcade or like amusement uh, park, uh, not amusement park, like a, 
a boardwalk type arcade. Mm -hmm. But the video they showed the most was the one where Harrison's playing a guitar while seated in an, a, a cabin. And you see uh, the furniture starts to move and rock and sway. Knickknacks sort of come yeah. up, come to life. Taxidermy animals begin to sing and dance with the song. Yeah, it's it's the Evil Dead part two. Right, yes. Yeah, yeah. it's the comedy version of it. Yeah, and then, yeah, many folks speculate that the reason why Gary Weiss, who directed this video, why it wound up being that way was because Evil Dead had come out just a short time before the music video was uh, created. All right, now this is another one where I'm going to play you the original, and you tell me, again, what's the name of the song, and who did it in the 1980s uh, that popularized it for us? I have no idea who that oh. is, but I yeah. recognize the song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't need to know who the original was. Who did it in the eighties, mm -hmm. and what's the song? Uh, I want to say Bobby Brown, New yeah. Edition, but yeah, I don't think that's right. Yeah, do you recognize the song? Which tune it was? I do. I, I I recognize the song. You know, I think you get thrown off because this. It, ultimately, the version we know in the nineteen eighties was done in a different genre. This song was originally written by. Hitmakers Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, so which is probably what set you down the path that you did, and originally performed by Sherelle in 1984. Of course, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis are the folks behind Janet Jackson's huge successes, including Control, which you said you didn't know a couple weeks ago, and it turns out you know every single song on the album pretty much. <laughs> yeah, I did say that. <laughs> they pretty much wrote all those songs. Uh, and in fact, th those guys are so successful. They have 31 top 10 hits in the UK and 41 in the US throughout their uh, you know career. That version I played for you peaked at number six on the Hot Dance Club Play Charts, number eight on the Billboard Hot Black Singles Charts, and number 79 on the Billboard Hot 100. This song is I Didn't Mean to Turn You On, which was popularized oh. by Robert Palmer in 1986. Yeah. And it was released on as the fifth single from his album Riptide. That single hit number two on the Billboard Hot 100 and number nine on the UK Singles Chart. This one also had a music video, which was like his Addicted to Love, where it was this mm -hmm. women that are clearly models, they were all doing that synchronized sort of movement. The guitars the women are playing aren't even plugged in. There's like no cables. Yeah, and they all have that dead, just yes. dead face. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Beautiful dead face. Mm -hmm. So that was that one. Okay. Here is another one. Which one of these is a cover? Never Going to Give You Up by Rick Astley from 1987. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Or Girl You Know It's True by Millie Vanilli, 1988. <laughs> <laughs> we know Millie Vanilli is shady as <laughs> so... But would they double down with lip syncing and do a cover? Now, when you're talking about the shady parts, though, the shady in the lip syncing, you're talking about the guys behind the scenes or the two guys that were actually the frontmen. I'm talking about the whole process okay. of Melody right. right. Okay, yeah. So I'm trying to figure it out using deductive reasoning. <laughs> I like this. Yes. So, yeah, those that whole camp there seems shady. Yep. I'm going to go with them as the cover. Okay. And here is the answer. You're right. And this version sounds pretty much just like Millie Vanilli, but it's mm -hmm. not. This uh, Girl You Know It's True, which was ultimately recorded by Millie Vanilli in 1988, was first written and recorded by members of a Baltimore-based group called Newmarks, which was essentially a collective of local DJs who would get together and create some songs. In 1987, they released a single, Rhymes So Deaf, which was received national airplay. Their follow-up to this was Girl, You Know It's True, which got little to no attention. Even though it wasn't popular in the U.S., though, it was a hit in German clubs, and that's where Millie Vanilli producer Frank Farian first heard the tune. Uh, in spring of 1988, 
at his recording studio in Germany. He played the original version on a turntable for Linda Rocco and Jody Rocco, who are American twin sisters that were living in, in Germany, having a, a music career there. He wanted them to learn what they needed to sing. Um, then he played them a, a drum track, just a drum track, and had them record their parts. Slowly, they built the song. Then they brought in Charles Shaw, who did the rapping, and eventually Brad Howell and John Davis came in to sing the vocals. It was a huge success, of course, uh, peaking at number two on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 for the week of April uh, 1st of 1989. Of course, that year, 1989, was also the year that Fab Morvan and Rob Palatis, the frontman of Millie Vanilli, were caught lip-syncing during a live performance where, when it finally reached the chorus, it just kept repeating, girl, you know it's never getting to true, which is, I wouldn't say it's ironic, but I guess it's exactly what you'd expect since none of this was true. It was all a lie. You know, the funny part is, is yeah. they could have pulled this off as just going, hey, look, we were lip syncing yeah. and it went awry, which it happens to a lot of artists who are pretending to do it live. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the the Simpson girl? That Ashley Simpson. Yep. Ashley Simpson. Yep. And she fell apart. Yep. At least these guys, you know, didn't completely fall apart. They just continued to do the little dance moves. Well, not exactly. Because I don't remember if it was Fab or Rob, but one of them ran off the stage. As if he could fix it. <laughs> you think that's what he was? He started- I think he was like, I could go fix this right now. And he found a reel-to-reel that was just came out loud. Yeah, he's looking for the button. He's looking for a button to push. <laughs> but all they had to say was, is look, we were lip syncing and then the track screwed up. And they would have gotten away with it. <laughs> it's not like Scooby-Doo. If it wasn't for meddling tape. But the problem they had was, even before this, I think, folks were suspicious. You know, my buddy in college, Alex, he called it long before the actual scandal broke because in the music videos, just watching the music videos together, he pointed out, it doesn't look like their lips are matching in the music video. And he said, I, yeah. and he said, I bet it's partly it's because they, don't, they didn't really sing it, so they don't know how to fake it. But the other challenge well, they had was, is they were both had different accents. I don't remember if it was Rob or Fab, but one of them was French and had a French accent. The other one was from Germany, yeah. had a German accent. So when you, when they were in, in interviews, they had trouble with the English language in a way that they didn't have a problem with singing. Well, you know, once again, at the time, a lot of artists sing in English. Yeah. With no accent. Like look at the Gallagher brothers from Oasis. Uh-huh. When they sing, yeah. only when certain words come up, do you know that they're mm-hmm. not American. And then they talk and they sound yeah. like they crawl out of a gutter in Ireland. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. And folks learn to do that because they want to be able to appeal to the most, the broadest audience and, possible. And, and they listen to a lot of artists from America. Sure. Yeah. And artists who are imitating Americans. Yeah. Like uh, Ozzy's a perfect example. He's clear as a bell. You'd think he was from America when he sings yeah. and then you hear him talk and it's like, holy yeah. what's going on that? I don't remember why they ultimately fessed up. I don't remember how the, what the breakdown was, you know, uh, maybe we should do an episode about this. The Millie, yeah, the Millie Vanilli scandal. Do a true crime sort of thing like that or something. Uh. more about it. Unfortunately, they had a tragic end eventually. Rob Pilatus, uh, well, let's not even say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, here's another one. Tell me which one of these is the cover. Heart and Soul by Huey Lewis from 1983 or Take Me Home Tonight by Eddie Money from 1986. This one's easy. It's okay. heart and soul. All right. Why do you? Why are you so confident this time around? Uh, because I've listened to the original many, many, many times, and there's many, many original uh, other versions of this song. Okay. There's the original piano version. Oh. Which is very awesome. Mm. And then there's a. I think it's the fifties. There's a slower version. Well, hey, we don't even know if you're right. So here's the answer. Oh. 
course you're right. I think the, this version, which was written by, uh, so, the, so the original song was written by, by Mike Chapman and his writing partner, Nikki Chin. This version I played you was the first recording of it by Exile in 1981. Exile is actually a band that has been around, though, since the 1960s and has cycled through as many as 30 members, you know, in those various decades. Hey, a lot of bands do that. Look at Menudo. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that was sort of the business model. Mm-hmm. Um, and Exile even changed its you know, sort of the genre of music. It went from rock to, I think, country at some point. But I, I think this version by Exile is not all that different than Huey Lewis's version. That chorus is maybe a little harder rocking, but the, the verses are very similar. They failed to crack the Billboard Hot 100, peaking at number 102 on a chart that I didn't even know Billboard had <laughs> until this. It's called the Bubbling Under Hot 100 Singles Chart. Man, if I'd have known that was a chart, maybe yep. I could have made it in the music business. Look, I just got to aim for mediocrity. I just got to yeah. get under that 100. Right. Huey Lewis and the news version uh, was the first single from sports, the 1983 album that we love and are f- familiar with, of course. It peaked at number eight on the Billboard Hot 100 that November and was number one on the Billboard Top Rock Tracks charts. It was nominated for a Grammy in the category of Rock Vocal Group. Yeah, Huey Lewis is one of the top 10 vocalists of all time. His voice is awesome. Yeah. So I think that's what really helps him sell this uh, this cover. I love that album. I love that. So. All right, here is the last one I have for you. And just like we did uh, on some of them, I'm going to play you the original version mm-hmm. of this song. You tell me the name of the song and who popularized it in the 1980s. Her hair is hollow gold. Her lips are sweet surprise. Not ringing a bell, buddy. I cu- I'm cutting it out before it gets to the the, the giveaway. Yeah, the giveaway. Because then, uh, I'm just gonna play it for you this time so you can hear mm-hmm. it. You got to get it after this. Her lips are sweet. Jesus Christ, <laughs> Betty Davis eyes? <laughs> yes. Isn't that crazy? Uh, that doesn't surprise me because I don't like that song. <laughs> oh, you don't? Well, yeah. So, you uh, know, obviously, I mean, we agree on some things, but yeah. I'm not a big pop music fan. Yeah. Like, it's got to have a little bit of rock mm-hmm. for most of the time. I mean, there, there's a lot of songs I like. If you ever have a chance to <laughs> run into Ray... Ask him what his favorite Christmas song is. Or I'd say his, or maybe it's his second favorite Christmas song. Okay, and then, you know, we'll see. Yeah, hey, so, my favorite Christmas song is awesome, and you know it. Yes, okay. So that song was written by Donna Weiss and, and Jackie DeShannon in 1974 and recorded by Jackie DeShannon that, that uh, same year. But, of course, it was re-recorded by American singer Kim Carnes in 1981. It was number one for five weeks on the Billboard Hot 100, but was interrupted for one week by the Stars on 45 medley. And then it returned to the top spot for another four weeks. I don't know if you remember Stars on 45 medley. That's like a whole other conversation, these kinds of, <laughs> these kinds of medley records that we got, even in decades before the 80s, but that was one in the 80s. It was Billboard's biggest hit of the year, and it was a number one, a number one hit in 21 countries. Also peaked at number 10 in the UK, and number two in Canada for 12 consecutive weeks. Actress Betty Davis who was 73 years old at the time that this song found its success, wrote letters to Carnes, Weiss, and to Shannon to thank them all for making her, quote, a part of modern times, end quote. Hmm. That's all I got for that one. <laughs> all right, hey, so look, I don't know, this show was like a kitchen sink episode or something. Is that a thing? 
We just that tossed a, a bunch thing. of stuff in there. Yeah. I mean, we first, you know, we did 80s news and then we <laughs> wow. did a review of coming to America. Mm-hmm. We did called the Smash Madness Bouts, which surprisingly had very little controversy. And finally, we reviewed the nine different hit songs from the 1980s that turns out were actually covers of earlier yeah. songs. But I don't know if we actually proved anything regarding the 1980s. We have proven. Oh. Beyond a shadow of a doubt. You sound a little skeptical. I don't know. That this episode. Oh, he regained his confidence. Yes. Was like a 1980s uh-huh. cornucopia. Oh, okay. I remember drawing those in 1980s for Thanksgiving. Yeah. Did you have to do that? And, all right. and there's all kinds of cool shit inside of it. That's right. Break it open. All right. Hey, we will talk to you next time on The Idiots. See ya. See ya.